Okay, hello there, and welcome to another lecture in contract law. So in this lecture and in the next lecture, we're going to talk about unfair terms in contract, focusing in particular on exclusion and limitation of liability clauses. Now, I guess technically an unfair term in contract law could cover anything. It could cover any term of a contract. But I'm going to focus on, on exclusion clauses in particular because they are, in many ways, the quintessential or classic example of an unfair term. So we've encountered this concept or idea of exclusion clauses already to some extent when we were looking at the rules on the incorporation of terms into a contract. So many of the cases that we discussed when we looked at the three methods of incorporation, and I'll mention this again in a moment, involved an attempt to incorporate an exclusion clause or a limitation of liability clause into a contract. And historically, common law courts were a little bit skeptical about the idea of exclusion and limitation of liability clauses and tended to adopt fairly strict rules regarding both their incorporation and their interpretation. Nowadays, this is an area of law that is heavily regulated by statute, both at a national level in the Sale of Goods Acts and also then at an EU level through the EC Unfair Terms and Contract Law Directive. So one of the things that we're actually going to cover in this set of lectures is the evolution of the legal position with respect to exclusion clauses from the common law tradition to the modern statutory regulated version. Okay, so I'll break this topic down into three main chunks. I'll look at the validity of exclusion clauses at common law, the validity of exclusion clauses under the Sale of Goods and Supply of Services Act and the various Sale of Goods Acts, and then also the validity of exclusion clauses uh, under EC law or European Community Law. So let's just be clear about what we're talking about up front in case the concept or term isn't familiar enough to you at this stage. An exclusion clause is, of course, an attempt to avoid liability, avoid paying damages for a breach of uh, what might be considered a term of contract. Or rather, let me put that another way, it is an attempt to prevent the payment of damages by specifying as a term of contract that you won't pay damages under certain conditions. So let's use a simple example of the exclusion clause that we found in the case of Thornton versus Shoe Lane Parking, which was an attempt by a, a, a company that owned and ran a multi-story car park to avoid liability for anyone who was injured on the premises. That's a classic illustration or example of an exclusion clause. Uh, it's also closely related then, of course, to the concept of a limitation of liability clause, which is an attempt to cap the amount of damages or the amount of liability that you might have. And we saw that in the case of James Elliott versus Irish Asphalt Limited, the term that was really at issue between the parties in that case was a limitation of liability clause. Irish Asphalt were claiming that they would only be liable for the replacement cost of the pyrite that was used in the hardcore foundation for the building and not for any consequential damages caused by the defective product. So exclusion clauses and limitation of liability clauses are very powerful from the perspective of the party that wants to have them incorporated into the contract because obviously it limits their risk, it reduces their risk associated with the contract. But in order to have these terms incorporated successfully into a contract and actually apply, you have to make sure that they are valid under the traditional common law rules, you have to make sure that they are valid under the Sale of Goods Acts, and you have to make sure that they are valid under the EC Unfair Terms and Contract Law Regulation, or Directive, sorry. 
as you'll learn, there's an important distinction between a regulation and a directive under European Union law. But I will get back to that later on in the second lecture in this set. So let me talk then first about the validity of exclusion clauses under common law rules. So in order for an exclusion or limitation of liability clause to be valid at common law, it must first of all be incorporated into the contract. And we covered the rules on incorporation already, but just to reiterate them, you will remember that in order for a term to be incorporated into a contract, there's three methods that you can use. You can incorporate it by signature, by getting somebody to sign a document stating the term. You can incorporate it by reasonable notice, by drawing a party's attention to the term, or you can have it incorporated by custom or course of dealing. So you have to clear that hurdle first, incorporate it. Then you have to clear an interpretation or construction hurdle. And again, I'm using the terms construction and interpretation interchangeably for these lectures, although some people do draw a technical distinction between the two practices. It's fine for present purposes to treat them as the same thing. So you have to make sure that the term, the exclusion clause that you're trying to get incorporated into the contract, will be interpreted in a way by the courts that actually covers the kind of liability that you want to avoid. So there's an important history or evolution in the law with respect to the interpretation of exclusion clauses. And the gist of it is that historically courts used to apply quite a restrictive test or approach to the interpretation of exclusion clauses. They tried to limit their effectiveness. Nowadays, courts try to avoid that overly restrictive approach and instead prefer to adopt a more general or common set of interpretive rules so that they apply the same approach to interpretation that they apply to all terms, to exclusion clauses. And that is something that was covered in one of the articles that I assigned for the tutorials, this article by Lord Justice Bingham on the principles of interpretation in contract law. So worth going back and reading over that to get a sense of what the general interpretive approach adopted by courts nowadays is. But just to state it here, essentially what courts are trying to do is trying to figure out what meaning should be given to the terms within the contract that is objectively reasonable given the circumstances of the case. Now, despite that evolution in the law, you do still find that there are some scenarios in which courts adopt a strict approach to the interpretation of exclusion clauses. And we'll go through some cases now that illustrate this complexity in the law. So let's start with the case of the Cleovolus of Rhodes. So that's the name of a ship. Um, so I'm adopting the common convention of naming a case that involves a ship after the name of the ship in question. And this is a case from 2003, and it's an English decision. So the facts of the case are that you have this ship, the Cleovolus of Rhodes, that sails from Colombia to Greece with a cargo of coal. And the ship is detained in the port of Alaveri in Greece in August of 1998, after the authorities there discover that it, it contains almost 200 kilograms of cocaine in its cargo. Now, the captain and crew of the ship, they were all detained and prosecuted under Greek narcotics law for the illegal importation of drugs into Greece. They were eventually all acquitted of their charges in January of 2000. So the dates are kind of important here. So the ship itself was detained then for over a year until it was eventually sold off to a third party. Now, this particular case involved the insurance contract 
under which the ship was insured. And this might help to answer a question that you may have had about this case is, you know, this involved a ship sailing from Colombia to Greece. Why is this an English case? Well, the reason it's an English case is that the insurance contract was governed by English law. That's something that I mentioned previously. It's quite common because there's a lot of the insurance industry based in England. So under the terms of the insurance contract, the ship owners were entitled to a significant claim of damages if their ship was detained for an extended period of time, which this ship was. It was extended for, it was detained for more than a year. So the ship owners are obviously rubbing their hands with glee at this because they get to make a big claim. There was, however, one little fly in the ointment here, which was that there was an exclusion clause within the insurance contract stating that claims could not be made if any of the following events occurred. If there was an arrest, restraint, detainment, confiscation, or expropriation under quarantine regulations or by reason of infringement of any customs or trading regulations. So in essence, although the essence here is what's at issue in the case, if there was a breach of law and that was the reason for the detention of the ship, then there might be the possibility of the insurance company avoiding or excluding liability for damages. So the key interpretive issue here was that the insurance contract stated that there was an exclusion of liability if there was an infringement of customs or trading regulations. So the key question became, what is meant by customs regulations? The ship owners were trying to argue that this should only be constructed or interpreted in a way that covered rules relating to the imposition of duties, customs and excise, on imported, on imported goods, and that it should not be interpreted in a way that covered rules of criminal law. Contrarywise, the insurers argued that the terms customs regulations should be interpreted broadly to include criminal law. Now, you might think to your mi- own mind that this is a classic example of a situation in which maybe something like the contra proferentum rule of interpretation should apply, and we'll actually talk about that rule of interpretation in a moment. But the court said that it shouldn't, and that what should happen is that you should adopt this more objective approach to interpretation, and that there's two issues to consider when you interpret a term like customs regulations. First, you should try to ascertain the meaning of that term within the relevant industry, within the shipping industry. And second, you should consider any well-settled meaning that had been applied by courts in previous similar cases. So they found that the term customs regulations was widely used in international shipping contracts in a way that was understood to have a broader meaning and to include criminal law. Furthermore, they found that there were previous cases decided by the English House of Lords that had agreed with that broader interpretation. So there was, for example, a case from 1971 involving a ship called the Anita, which applied a broader definition or understanding of customs regulations. So applying both of these tests, it seemed that the objective meaning of the term customs regulations within the industry was to cover criminal regulations, not just the imposition of duties. So the ship owner has lost that particular battle. Despite that, the contra proferentum rule does still sometimes apply in relation to insurance contracts. And again, it's probably more common where you have an ordinary consumer insurance contract, like a contract for car insurance or home insurance, where the homeowner or car owner is claiming against the insurance company 
and probably not so much in commercial insurance contracts where both parties are probably well-to-do commercial enterprises with lots of assets. And there's one, I've well, actually already mentioned cases in which the contraproferentum rule was applied in some of the older lecture lectures, but there's an interesting case that can illustrates its application here, which is Houghton versus Trafalgar Insurance Limited. It's a 1953 All England Reports decision. And the facts are kind of memorable. So you have the plaintiff who's in an accident while he is carrying six people in a five-seater car. So his car is over its maximum occupancy. He tries to make a claim under his insurance policy, but the insurance company tries to resist this by pointing to an exclusion clause within his insurance contract that stated that the insurers would not be liable for accidents arising while the driver is carrying an excess load. So the question then becomes, is the meaning of excess load ambiguous? Are there more than one possible ways to interpret that term? And the plaintiff argued that it was ambiguous. He said that excess load could apply to an excessive number of passengers, or it could apply to an excessive weight of goods. So the Court of Appeal agreed that the term is ambiguous, and so when they have an ambiguous term, one that can be interpreted in more than one way, or there's more than one possible meaning, rather, that applies to it, and it's not just vague, then they can apply the contraproferentum rule. And so they said that applying that rule, the meaning should be the one that favors the weaker party, the party that didn't control the wording of the contract. And so the plaintiff was successful in making his claim against the insurance company, because the correct way to interpret it in this set of circumstances was to say that excess load is an excess weight of goods, not an excess number of passengers. Okay, so even though the ordinary approach is to apply this objective, typical standard approach to interpretation, there are scenarios in which courts will apply a more restrictive approach, and the contraproferentum rule, where you have an ambiguous term and one party controlling the wording of the contract and clearly stronger than the other party, that's when they might apply the contraproferentum rule. Another point that's worth raising here has to do with exclusion clauses that cover liability for negligence. And again, the historical norm is that courts have been a little bit skeptical of exclusion clauses that attempt to avoid liability for the negligence of a service provider or the seller of goods. And you can kind of understand why this would be the case, because essentially, if you have an exclusion clause that covers liability for negligence, you're using contract law to undermine or avoid a right under civil law or tort law. So what courts have done historically is that they said that if you have an exclusion clause that is vaguely worded or, you know, ambiguously worded, that appears like it might cover negligence, avoiding liability for negligence, they will interpret it in such a way that prevents that from applying. So in other words, in order to avoid liability for negligence, you have to be very precise or specific with your wording. So one thing that has happened in cases is where companies have tried to rely on on an exclusion clause that might have a general statement like, we are not liable for any damage caused by any particular means or we're not liable for any flood damage caused by any means, or we're not liable for any fire damage caused by any means. And so, you know, you could argue that the phrase or term any means any could cover negligence, 
But courts typically will say, no, it doesn't cover negligence because it, it's a vaguely worded exclusion clause and you have to be precise if you want to avoid liability for negligence. So we actually covered a case that deals with this already. We looked at it in, in relation to the incorporation of terms into a contract, but it also is relevant for how we construe and interpret exclusion clauses with respect to negligence. And it's the case of Hollier versus Rambler Motors Limited. It's a 1972 English decision, and you might remember some of the facts here. Hollier uh, places his car at the defendant's garage for repairs. He had done this on three or four occasions previously. On at least two of those occasions, he was asked to sign an invoice stating that the garage would not be liable for any damage caused by fire. And on this particular occasion, he didn't sign a document, and the car was damaged by fire. So one question here is whether there was an incorporation of the term into the contract, and the the garage tried to argue that there was by a course of dealing, but that they weren't successful on that argument. But the court actually went on to consider, well, even if they had been successful on, in that argument, would the exclusion clause have covered damage caused through negligence? And they said no. And uh, Lord Justice Salmon, in the decision, says something important about how courts approach exclusion clauses dealing with negligence. He says the following. It is well settled that a clause excluding liability for negligence should make its meaning plain on its face to any ordinarily literate and sensible person. The easiest way of doing that, of course, is to state expressly that the garage or tradesman or merchant, as the case may be, will not be responsible for any damage caused by his own negligence. No doubt, Many are a little shy about writing such an exclusion clause quite so bluntly as that. Clearly, it would not tend to attract customers and might even put many off. I'm not saying that an exclusion clause cannot be effective to exclude negligence unless it does so expressly, but in order for a clause to be effective, the language should be so plain that it clearly bears that meaning. I do not think that defendants should be allowed to shelter behind language which might lull the customer into a false sense of security by letting him think, unless perhaps he happens to be a lawyer, that he would have redress for any damage which he might suffer by negligence. So you can see what Lord Justice Salmon is saying there. It has to be very plain and clear that they're trying to avoid liability for negligence. They can't hide behind some vague wording. And he also comments there, rather importantly, on why a business might be reluctant to include such an explicit statement of the exclusion clause within the contract because nobody really wants to admit that they might be negligent if they're in trade. Okay, so as we've seen so far, the traditional common law approach to exclusion clauses has evolved over time. It used to be the courts applied a very restrictive approach to them. Now they tend to just adopt a general approach to interpretation, focusing on objective meaning in the circumstances to all cases and to all terms, including exclusion clauses. Nevertheless, there are a couple of scenarios in which they will adopt the more restrictive approach, such as scenarios in which the contraproferentum rule can be applied, and also then, as we saw, in relation to exclusion of liability for negligence. There is another little wrinkle with respect to the common law tradition when it comes to the interpretation of exclusion clauses, and that wrinkle has to do with the so-called doctrine of fundamental breach. Now, I'm almost reluctant to discuss this because it may just be a a historical curiosity at this stage and maybe something that is evolving out of the law. 
Nevertheless, it still seems to be the case that Irish courts might apply this doctrine, so we'll cover it for what it's worth. Now, it's a little bit confusing as an idea, so let me see if I can do my best to explain it. So I mentioned previously when I was covering the definitions of terms of contract and the distinction between conditions and warranties that a condition is something that is fundamental to a contract and a warranty is something that is not. And if you breach a condition of contract, it entitles you to certain kinds of damages and the right to repudiate a contract or terminate a contract, whereas if you breach a warranty of contract, you don't have the same level of entitlement. So the doctrine of fundamental breach is sort of linked to that, but it may refer to something even more fundamental to a contract. So the basic idea is that there are certain contracts for the sale or supply of goods where a fundamental term of that contract is to do a particular act or supply a particular type of good, and you cannot avoid or exclude liability for failing to act properly perform the fundamental promise of the contract. So, I mean, here's an example. Suppose I agreed to build a kitchen for you. There might be lots of you know, terms within the contract that we conclude relating to the color of the units, you know, the height, width, dimensions of them, a lot of specifications involved. But surely we could all agree that a fundamental aspect of the contract, the fundamental promise of the contract is that I will actually build you a kitchen. Well, if that's the case, I shouldn't be able to turn around and include within the contract that we conclude between us a term stating that I cannot be liable for failing to build you a kitchen. Otherwise, you know, what would be the point of entering into the contract at all? So really in the 1970s, this idea that you couldn't avoid liability for a fundamental breach of contract was a popular idea among some common law courts, and it was particularly popularized by um, Lord Justice Denning. He kind of invented the doctrine to some extent although it wasn't just him that uh, referred to it or used it. But the famous case that illustrates the doctrine, and it is a Lord Denning case, is Harbutt's Plasticine versus Wayne Tank Corporation. It's a 1970 English Court of Appeal decision. And so the contract there involved the defendants agreeing to install pipes in the plaintiff's new plasticine factory. And these pipes were going to be made of plastic, and they were going to be used to convey molten plasticine. So consequently, they had to be sturdy enough to withstand the high levels of heat from the molten plasticine. Now, unfortunately, they were not. They were defective, and they started to melt when the molten plasticine was conveyed through them. And the problem here was that under the contract, there was a limitation clause included that stated that the defendant's liability would be limited at £15,000. But the English Court of Appeal, through the judgment of Lord Justice Denning, said that that limitation clause was invalid because it related to a promise that was fundamental to the contract. It was the core promise of the contract that you would create pipes that would withstand the heat of molten plasticine. So what he actually said in his judgment was that where one party has been guilty of a fundamental breach of contract... That is a breach which goes to the very root of the contract, and the other side accepts it so that the contract comes to an end, then the guilty party cannot rely on an exemption or a limitation clause to escape from his liability for breach. 
So, look, I mean, for what it's worth, I think that Lord Denning's judgment here makes a certain amount of sense. I think it sounds reasonable, plausible to say that you shouldn't be able to avoid or limit liability for something that is fundamental to the promise that you're making to another party. And if the courts allowed for the validity of such exclusion or limitation of liability clauses, they would seem to be kind of making a mockery of contract. Nevertheless, there are lots of people who disagree with this idea. And it might be worth noting that some schools of economic thought think that you should be allowed to contract for anything and include basically any kind of term you like, up to certain limits like breaching criminal law within your contract. And in particular, let's go back to the kitchen example that I had earlier on. If the kitchen maker wants to transfer the risk of non-completion of the kitchen to the party who is buying his services or her services, then as long as the other party consents to that, purchases the risk of non-completion off the builder or construction worker, then that's fine. That's just a rational, efficient market transaction. Now, I'm not sure that I personally buy that. It still sounds wrong to me. It sounds counterintuitive that you would be able to create a contract of that sort. Nevertheless, it's worth noting that the English courts and the House of Lords in particular didn't like Lord Denning's idea of the doctrine of fundamental breach and rejected it outright in the case of Photo Production Limited versus Securicore Transport Limited. Transport Limited, sorry. Um, so also, for those of you who care about these kinds of historical, judicial curiosities, this is another example of a case in which Lord Denning in the Court of Appeal in England was in conflict with Lord Wilberforce in the House of Lords in England. And we saw that already in the case of Liverpool City Council versus Irwin, which had to do with implied terms of contract. So anyway, look, the facts of the Photo Production Limited case were as follows. The defendants, Securicore Transport, supplied security services to the plaintiffs. The Defendants, as part of this contract, agreed to provide patrolmen to protect and guard the plaintiff's premises. One of their standard conditions of contract stated that they excluded liability for the acts and omissions of employees, except where those acts could have been foreseen or avoided by due diligence. Now, one of the patrolmen employed by the defendants started a fire, which totally destroyed the plaintiff's premises, and the defendants then tried to rely on the exclusion clause, holding out that the behavior of the patrolman is not something that they could have foreseen or prevented through due diligence, and so they didn't have to pay for the damages caused. In the Court of Appeal, Lord Justice Denning held that the breach in question was a fundamental breach of contract, because they had agreed to provide security services of a competent nature, and they didn't provide that. So liability couldn't be avoided here. But the House of Lords very clearly disagreed. And so Lord Justice Wilberforce in his judgment said the following. The question of whether and to what extent an exclusion clause is to be applied to a fundamental breach or a breach of a fundamental term is, as always, a matter of construction. And there are ample resources in the normal rules of contract law for dealing with these without the superimposition of a judicially invented rule of law. So he's giving Lord Denning a bit of a slap on the knuckles there and saying, look, you've just invented this doctrine or idea of fundamental breach, that you can't have an exclusion clause covering a fundamental breach. We don't need this new doctrine. We can apply the old rules on the interpretation of exclusion clauses, and we can just work out you know, what is objectively reasonable in the circumstances, 
does one of the more restrictive interpretive rules relating to negligence or you know the contraproferentum scenario do they apply here and can they avoid the outcome that we might find abhorrent or counterintuitive that's what we should rely upon we shouldn't focus on this new rule of fundamental breach i should also say here in that judgment you may find a hint that there are lots of statutory rules in place now which cover unfair terms in contract law, which we'll be talking about very soon in the, in the next lecture, and they might help parties out in this kind of scenario. And so we can rely upon them instead of, again, a judicially invented rule. Now, all that said, the leading Irish case on this matter is a case from 1970. It's the Clayton Love versus British and Ireland Transport Limited case, and it's an Irish Supreme Court decision and it supports the Lord Denning line that there is this doctrine of fundamental breach. So the facts of the case is that you had the parties who contracted to ship frozen scampi from Dublin to Liverpool. The loading was done improperly, which resulted in the scampi being declared unfit for sale when it arrived in Liverpool. Now the plaintiffs tried to sue, but the defendants relied on a very broad exclusion clause in order to avoid liability. Both the Irish High Court and Supreme Court found against the plaintiffs on the grounds that they couldn't avoid liability for a fundamental breach and shipping scampi in a state that they were fit for sale was the fundamental promise in the contract, and so you can't avoid liability for that. Now you'll see if you read any of the textbooks in relation to the doctrine of fundamental breach in Ireland that there are some recent Irish decisions that suggest that judges would like to overturn this or adopt a different approach, and they often avoid relying on or appealing to the notion of fundamental breach, even though parties in Ireland sometimes still argue it. But we still don't have a case that definitively overrules that 1970s Supreme Court decision, so the position of the doctrine of fundamental breach in Ireland remains uncertain to this day. Okay, so that's where I'm going to leave it for this lecture. So we've just covered the construction and interpretation of exclusion clauses under the rules of common law. In the next lecture, we'll move on to talk about whether these clauses can be valid under statute law and EU law.